morning, I'd like to tell you a story about a remarkable, successful company and a truly outstanding CEO. This CEO is widely acclaimed for his insights into marketing and product design, and he has a unique ability to get the task done, but attend to his people as well. He's the heart of the company, and the employees have reported on innumerable sacrifices that he's personally made. In fact, respect for this CEO runs so deep that the employees gather weekly to quote and celebrate him, topping each other with stories of his achievements and his passion for all of them to thrive, just like the company. This visionary CEO has written a book about how to run the company, and the book is a worldwide bestseller. The leaders quote from it, study, model their lives on it. It's such a big part of company life that they refer to it as the book. And yet, lately, something is amiss. The company's market share is dwindling. The Wall Street has marked shares from the company as a sell. Profits are down. Things are not going well, and nobody knows why. Some prominent leaders have done the unthinkable and left the company, leaving the book on their office shelves. The leaders who haven't left are discouraged. But the odd thing is this. The buildings are so clean, they sparkle. And the janitors are relentlessly cheerful. They walk into a room, and everybody's spirits rise. So business is tanking, and the leaders get together. What's wrong? Should we study the book more? Should we get more attendance at the weekly celebrations? Attendance is down. Then one of the older leaders recalls a time many years ago when they used to meet with the CEO weekly. And others are puzzled by the idea because it, it, it seems like a real waste of time. They've got so much to do for the CEO. But she recalls that he listened well. However, he didn't always answer right away, and you need to answer right away to run a company. So, um, someone suggests asking the janitors how to talk to the CEO, but that's dismissed out of hand. Obviously, the janitors don't know how to run the company. So, a few of the leaders decide, let's go find that janitor's meeting. It's got to be here somewhere. And they search the executive offices. They search marketing and sales. No trace. But someone remembers hearing that there's down in the basement, behind the furnace room, an empty supply room. So they approach it and hear quiet murmuring. And then they take a peek. The light is so bright, they can't see. But as their eyes adjust, they see the janitors are talking. But they don't see the CEO anywhere or hear him. They're puzzled. However, week by week, these leaders descend the stairs to the basement, and they begin to listen to how the janitors talk to the CEO. And 
eventually they start to get glimpses out of the corner of their eye, his hand, or his voice, or a sense of his presence. And as weeks go by, they begin to see some changes. They start joining in to talk and see unusual things happening in their work. Their plans are falling apart, but something is happening in their lives. Their work is sparkling. So, as the CEO is directing their lives, nobody can stop him, and he never shows up the same way twice. Others begin to see their lives are sparkling as well, just like the bathrooms. Don't you want to take part in this? Get to talk to the CEO? It's a parable. <laughs> and I think you get it. For 10 months, we've been asking ourselves, what does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit? And one prominent way in which the Spirit is at work individually, communally, and last week publicly is in this thing that we just heard spoken of about communion, about praying, about conversation. And the last thing that we want to do in a series talking about praying is simply leave you with this idea, you should pray more. Because I might as well just say, it's winter. You need to up your intake of vitamin D. And that may be true. And you go, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But the parable is meant, obviously, to encourage and to exhort us to the possibility that there may be more to this idea of regular conversation with the CEO, with the Lord himself, than perhaps we give him credit. But I know and you know that as soon as I say the word praying, what comes over many of you is maybe this unstated kind of dread. Because now you're just laying on me one more habit that I have to cultivate, which, if we're honest with ourselves, we think when people say we ought to pray that we all just ought to cultivate the habit for the sake of the habit. No. The parable is there to tell us that regular conversation will manifest itself in ways that bring us a sense of integrity, a sense of wholeness, and will begin to change the way in which we think of ourselves and of life and of him and on all things. That's why. But you and I, well, here's two voices that you never thought you'd be pushed together. The first one is from Jelly Roll. I wonder why they call him that. It's a song. It's everywhere. I only talk to God when I need a favor, and I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. If I only talk to God when I need a favor, but God, I need a favor. Maybe that describes the way in which you think of prayer. I know I need something. I'll go to him. Every else is like, I'm not really sure. Or consider this very poignant way of putting it from her prayer journal. Flannery O'Connor died in the 1950s of an autoimmune disease called lupus who in her prayer journal, who she would probably hate to know that it was ever found and then published. But she, she wrote this, Oh God, please make my mind clear. 
Please help me to get down under things and find where you are. My attention is always very fugitive. This is why I have it in every instant. I can feel a warmth of love heating me when I think and write this to you. But please don't let the explanations of the psychologists about this make it turn suddenly cold. My intellect is so limited, Lord, that I can only trust in you to preserve me as I should be. Whether it's Jelly Roll or Flannery O'Connor, I've probably captured some of you in how you think about what praying is. I want to start with this line from Peter Lightheart, both at the beginning of this sermon and at the end of it. But he says this, it is natural for man to be on speaking terms with God. And some of us believe that some of the time. How shall we begin? We're going to begin in a very odd way. We're going to begin in a place in scripture at the very beginning, practically, of the whole narrative that has absolutely no instruction in what to pray for or how to pray. And yet it just so happens that it turns to be the very first recorded instance of there to be any kind of conversation between God and man. And it just happens to be at the most tragic, earliest moment of humanity's history. It says nothing about how, it says nothing about why, but I think by the end of our time, you will realize that it has something very powerful and probing to say to you about why prayer matters, and it's here to expand our sense of what it's for. We're going to listen both to what happens and then why it matters, what we're supposed to see, and then by the end, we're going to ask ourselves, so in light of that, what does that tell us about praying? We are going to start at the moment that is traditionally known as the fall of humanity, Genesis chapter 3. I wonder if you'd stand. We'll begin there. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, but neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? 
And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. What in the world? What does this have to do with praying? I will tell you. To this point, if you're unfamiliar with how the story has unfolded to this point, everything has been created. It's all been established. Hearkening back to our series on the Holy Spirit, who was responsible for forming and filling all things. Now everything has been done. And then instructions have been given to Adam and Eve. And then... Then humanity wonders, what now? Everything is here. What do we do? How do we think? And what humanity learns, at least according to verse 1 here, is that everything is from him, the Lord, but it would appear that not everybody is with him. Not everything is on the same page. So it speaks of this serpent, which With later reflection through the entirety of biblical history and and the scriptural narrative, you get to Job, and there's a temptation of Job, and that tempter is one who is known as the accuser. And then when we get to Jesus, and he is baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit sends him out into the wilderness, and he is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, and there he is tempted by one we know as the accuser. And so it's preferable or rather it's traditional to take those moments and to read them back on this one you can you don't have to the serpent is just a serpent a member of the created order who has decided i know better i rebel whether or not that is meant for us to think of the accuser or not you can at least agree that their agendas are in like step and the serpent's first job the serpent's first interest is to do what Did God really say you can't eat of that? To sow doubt, to create questions, to suggest that God does not have their best interests in mind, to undermine their trust. Eve responds, he said, we can eat of all of these, we can't eat of this one, And then she adds like a stipulation that she's never heard God say. She says, and you can't even touch it, which some commentators wonder if she's beginning to chafe against the restrictions that have been placed upon her, upon them. And in that moment, what does the serpent say? Honey, you're not going to die. In fact, in fact, you have no idea what it will gain you. Not only will you not die, You will be like him, which we should read as him really saying, you can be like him, which means you don't really will need him because he's really not interested in your best interests. He's just interested in knowing that he is God and you are not. He has a problem and you need to break off the restraint because as soon as you do, you will discover everything that you were meant to learn, but for whatever reason in his sort of puritanical world, or there's an anachronism, 
He doesn't want you to know. You don't have to submit to him. You can do better. She hears that. She sees that. She sees the fruit. Sparkles in her eye. She delights in it. She sees it as desired to be food, and she eats. And you know who else? Adam. There, present, passive, complicit. Together, they eat. That's what happened. What are you and I supposed to see here? This is more than a story, friends. This is a diagnostic tool for your condition, for what you are and for what has become of you, what has become of every human. It is not just a narrative. It is rendering for you a profile of your existence, your condition, that as much as you would like to avoid it, as much as the transhumanists would like to think they can escape it, this is you. And the first thing I think we are meant to notice here in this moment when Eve and Adam partake of this fruit is one thing, your frailty. Even before anything else has happened, we are seeing frailty, a weakness, a susceptibility, a capability, or rather an incapability of being able to weigh in real time Two things that are desirable and knowing which one is more desirable than the other. Which thing ought to be fallen for and to have a priority and that which ought not be. And in that way, we are weak. We are frail. We can be seduced. We can end up looming larger than that which is really worthy of our attention and of our worship. We are not as strong as we think we are. And the longer that you and I deny that, the worse it gets. We are dependent creatures. And the extent to which that we forget that, we step into danger and we are full of arrogance. And in some sense, there is a a sympathy that ought to be applied here in a moment like this. It's not just... It's not wagging the finger, even though I'm using kind of a, 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 an abrupt tone with you here. I, let me borrow something else from, from Flannery O'Connor's prayer journal. When, when she's talking to the Lord about her own self and how she kind of gets in the way, and she puts it in a way that only Flannery O'Connor's literature can. She says this, Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. The crescent... It's very beautiful, and perhaps that is all one like I am should or could see. But what I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. Oh, you could sit and ponder with that one all afternoon. It's where Eve and Adam go. They become so big, and God becomes so small, they begin to eclipse the fullness of who he is, because they've been told, you don't need him. That's our frailty. And we live outside of Eden. And you can either acknowledge that frailty or pretend it is not there. When Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs last week 
sing that song, and everybody is thrilled and cheers, and if you hear it, you get the tingles, and you go, why? And look, um, anything Tracy, you, Tracy Chapman could sing, Mary Had a Little Lamb, and we would drop everything. Come on, come listen to this. I, I think it's not just the haunted melodies that only she can pull off and, and Luke Combs, you know, wonderfully compliments in that moment. I, I, the song itself is a ballad about two people in difficult times who find strength in one another's love. But I, I would like to argue for all of you in this room that why that song is still being sung uh, 35 years later is because of the line in the chorus and I had a feeling that I belonged. I had a feeling I could be someone. Be someone. Be someone. You don't have to have her experience. You don't have to have the experience of the song to know that's me. I want to know that I can belong. I want to know that I can be someone. It is everybody's story. You can be the richest person on earth. That is your song. You can have nothing. And that is your song. And I'm arguing for you that even Adam in that moment, Adam and even that moment when they're being offered the opportunity to be like God's, what they're being offered is you can know that you belong and you can become someone. You just don't need him to be the one for it. That is your frailty. This is a song from just outside the outskirts of Eden. And there is nothing wrong with wanting to belong. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be someone. I have the same desire, but it is the strategies that you and I deploy over and over again. We lie to ourselves. That's what we want, and we find every reason except him to find that we belong or that we can be someone. That's your frailty. That's what we're meant to see. And it all goes downhill from there. What happens in verse 7? They eat, and then something comes over them. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, wait. <laughs> Nine verses earlier. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. They shall cleave together. And they were naked, it says. No problem. And now all of a sudden, and their eyes were opened, and now they were naked. What? You didn't, whoa. I didn't, never saw that before. That's not, where, put something on. What's going on? I, I wish I could answer definitively. Theologians and rabbis across history come up with any, some wonderful explanations about what does it mean that their eyes were opened, and now they saw that they were naked. Here's a silly guess. When I was a kid, I was like six or seven, I'm in a department store with my mother. We are in a lamp store. I think maybe I've told you this story before. And I'm walking among the lamps as one in a forest of light. <laughs> and my mother is considering what lamp she shall buy. You know? And so when you're six, everything that's a floor lamp is towering, right? So I'm walking among the lamps. And at some point, I realized that my foot has come underneath one of the cords that's holding the lamp. And I realized if I continue to move, something might happen. 
but I've got to move. What am I going to do about it? I don't want to say anything. Mom's at the counter, maybe checking out. And so finally, it's like, okay, I'm going to take a risk. So I move. Well, lamp falls, smash, shatter. I'm like this. My mom's like this. The manager's like this, right? <laughs> and in the moment, I realized I broke it. I can't unbreak it. I would like to suggest that Adam and Eve in that moment when their eyes were opened and they saw what they have lost in light of what they tried to gain and they realized, what have we done? What have we broken? What have we become? We violated our, his trust. We violated our communion with him. We violated our love. What have we done? What have we become? Which is all implicit behind this question. Can we ever be loved again? I've done something fiendish. Will they ever love me? What do we, what do we see in a moment like that? What are we meant to see there is a frailty that leads to a failure and that failure is now unfurled and what we see in that moment with their eyes opened and now that they see they're naked and they cover themselves with fig leaves, what do they see? What do we see? What are we meant to see? What you better not miss if you don't finish the story, it's this. You saw frailty and now you're seeing what's downstream of that frailty when you fall into it in failure, you see shame. In chapter two, it says they were naked and unashamed. And now, what do they want to do? They want to cover their nakedness. Look, uh, don't raise your hand, but how many of you in this room have ever had a dream in the middle of the night where you're walking around in a public place and you have no pants on? I'm not the only one. What a terrible thought that is. What a God, somebody hand me a towel. Somebody hand me a towel. That's real. And a lot of you know it. And shame is real. And shame will swallow you up. And shame is what is at work here. When frailty succumbs to failure, it leads to shame. And it's unfurled. And for those of you that might be here, they're like, I'm not really sure about this Jesus thing and the God thing. And I, oh, yeah, you people. Like, you know, it, it takes a religion to feel bad about yourself, right? That's what you, that's what you might have walked in here for, right? The, the, who was it? H.L. Mencken that said uh, the definition of a Puritan is, is the worry that there's somebody out there having a good time. <laughs> um, yeah, you religious folk, you're just like that. Well, okay, ha, I'm pushing back. Ready? Here's a, here's a comment from Russell Moore. He wrote something recently. He said this, um, For so long, so many have assumed that sin and guilt are outdated categories suited for a medieval era, but not for this one. The prophets and apostles, though, told us that sin and guilt, along with the search for meaning to life, the fear of death, and an answer to shame, might be culturally amplified realities. But they're not culturally created. Guilt and shame are fallen human conditions, not ancient or pre-modern or modern or postmodern ones. The question is not whether the world around us is grappling with guilty consciences, but how. If you walk in this room today and you would of yourself as an agnostic or an atheist, I will bet your bottom dollar you know exactly what it feels like to feel guilty and feel shame, but you don't know why. It's not a particularly religious experience. It's a universal human experience. 
And what happens when shame happens? Two things flow from it. The first thing you hear in the next part of the passage. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is where shame goes. Shame is just not a feeling. Shame has a million manifestations, first of which in the manifestation of hiding. You will hide. You do hide. Things that things have, that have been done to you, things that you have done, things that you have done with the things that have been done to you, you will hide. And do you think that's just sort of a religious idea that, again, it's not my problem, it's somebody else's problem, and you religious folks should just sort of get on with life and stop worrying about God? I'm telling you, it is your story too. I'm going to show you a clip from a film that came out a few, several years ago called The Heart of Shame. And you're going to hear some of the themes I have just spoken of. Uh, in very concrete terms, but it, it will be set in the context of imagery of, of, of a dinner table. And what is a dinner table? It is a place of intimacy. It is a place of connection. It is a, it is a place where you're going to have to make eye contact for us to eat. But if you are full of shame, things happen. So, well, here. There is a longing in the deepest parts of us to belong, the hope that there is a table somewhere that we, we might actually be comfortable inside our own skin. We don't have to hide, we don't have to have our secrets. something is uniquely wrong with me so I'm never telling anyone but it feels like everybody knows it feels like some something on my face that everybody can see it that if you get close enough to me it makes me awkward in crowds it makes me insecure it makes me perform I become a great performer I so much want you to love me and I think if I'm funny enough or talented enough cool enough witty enough, do funny things in a crowd that you'll think I'm worth knowing and loving, but I don't believe it. I always felt that God was mildly disgusted with me. Hearing that he loves me didn't really resonate because it's like when it's all said and done, he's still going to judge me. You know, when it's all said and done, he's still not happy with where I am or who I am. And so I don't feel close to him. I don't feel intimate with him. I don't even feel the freedom to speak to him because he's over there and I'm over here. I think shame fundamentally is that inner judgment that there is something ugly, distorted, and broken about us that if someone were to see, they could not bear being in relationship with us, and we could not bear being in relationship with them. Shame is that thing that drives my compulsive behavior. 
in whatever manner. I'm never going to be enough, so I have permission. I have entitlement to do wrong. It's a whole sermon. Where does shame take you? That you want to hide because you feel like you are only at best mildly disgusted? Someone is mildly disgusted? You will do everything to compensate for that shame by doing all sorts of things that you think impress everybody? Or you will feel entitled to do all the things that are self-destructive and harmful to others? Because who cares? There's nothing that can be done with me. I will do that anyway. And at least I will feel good a little bit. Shame takes you to hiding in those places, in those ways. And you're supposed to see yourself here. It's not just a story. Shame manifests in hiding. You know how it also manifests? What happens when finally Adam and Eve start talking to God when he goes, where are you? Who told you you were naked? What does he say? What do they say? Who told you that you were naked? If you eat near the tree, the man says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What? They're blaming. The searing heat of being caught, their first inclination is to defend themselves and to lay their struggle at somebody else's feet. That's where shame goes too. Friends, I know that there are people in this room who have been deeply hurt by people. I get it. And you have reason to say, I have been hurt. And that is true. And I would not diminish that in the least. But I also know that there are people in this room who have been hurt, but who are also refusing to consider how they've contributed to their own problem. And they lay their blame at somebody else's feet. It's never their fault. Because they're living from a place of shame that they can't put their finger on. And it's what happens there, and it's an archetype for everybody in this room. And if you're not aware of the way in which you can use blame to shift it in other ways, you are destroying yourself. You are destroying everything that's beautiful around you. It's not just a story. There is frailty, there is failure that leads to shame, which is all part of one last thing that you and I are meant to see here in the story. What? What's going on? The reason frailty and the failure leads to shame is because of something even more fundamental. It's that they have forgotten something. They have forgotten, first of all, their purpose. And here, where if you don't know the whole part of Genesis, you're not aware of what had happened two chapters earlier. God creates all things. Let us make man man in our own image, male and female. He created them in chapter 1. And then he says, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's their mandate. I've put you here. I've given you all you need. Now, just like the outdoor code, leave it better than you found it. Cultivate it for your good and my honor. You're in charge. Do with it. Do well with it. And here's where we got this, we got we to we shoot long into the far end of the, of the Bible in the New Testament. Because as we heard during Advent about glory, 
and the centrality of that theme and how we think about ourselves and about the Lord and in our project. In Romans chapter 8, after you hear the verse that you hate most of the time because you think Paul can't sympathize with the tragedy that's befallen you, he can. But he says in Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Cool. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. What? Glorified. I mean, we talked about being a luminous thing, so we walk around, look how, ra- you look simply radiant. You know what glorified means? I introduced this book to you a while back. Her name is Haley Gorenson Jacob, and it's called uh, Conform to the End of His Son. She writes a whole book on that one verse. The whole book, one verse. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of his son? What does it mean to be glorified? And she boils it down to two things. Participation in the firstborn son, rule over creation as God's family and renewed creation, and reinstitution of humanity's dominion over creation on the basis of their adoption. Oh my gosh, thick theology. Sorry, not sorry. To be glorified is simply to fulfill what God had intended for Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, but which they cast off because they wanted to be their own gods. That's being glorified. What they have forgotten is their purpose, their vocation. And the reason they have forgotten their vocation and their purpose is because, to borrow a modern term, they've lost the plot. What is the plot? It's what you hear there in the last two verses of the passage that we read today from Genesis 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done all this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. That's what happens to the serpent. And then God talks to man and woman and he says this, I will put enmity, oh, he's still talking to the serpent, sorry. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What in the world? You kind of wish, come on, elaborate. What? what do you mean? And if you're a rabbinical scholar, you go, that's curious. And then Christians come along and they go, ah, that's a hint. That's an echo. That's a little dusty, faded, opaque hieroglyphic that I wish we had more data to figure out what he meant. That then future stuff happens along the way and you discover that's pointing to someone we've heard of before. The seed of the serpent, that is the seed of the opposition to all that is of God, will bruise his heel. But the seed of the woman will bruise his head, will trample his head. The reason we forget our purpose, friends, the reason that Genesis 3 is out to show them that they forgot their purpose is because they are not also aware of how God is arranging the story. You forget your purpose because you forget the plot. How shall I summarize the plot for you? How about I do it in pictorial form? Here it is from a nun out in Kansas. You've seen it before. Mary consoles Eve. There it is. Alistair McIntyre said, you don't know what you ought to do with your life until you know what story you're in. If you're a Christian, this is your story. This is the plot. You're frail, and now you know shame, and in that shame you forget your purpose and the plot, and long God comes to intervene, and he shall be bruised, wounded for our transgressions, that you might then be adopted and rediscover your place in his part 
in his program for the world. That is the plot you're in. If you're not sure about it, this is the story. I've got no other. Frailty, shame, forgetfulness. That's what we're meant to see in Genesis 3. So here's the punchline. What in the world does that have to do with prayer? Maybe you're following. If Peter Lighthart's right, that it is natural for man to be on speaking terms with God, then friends, I know we pray for people that want healing, and we should. I know that we pray for people that are in need of provision, and we should. I know that we pray for people who are in need of mercy, and we should. But I'll just tell you, along the way, you and I need to grapple with the fact with what happens if we're not praying? It's not about God going, mm, 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 mm. The extent to which you do not pray is the extent to which you deny that you're frail. It is your refusal to acknowledge your dependence. That's what you're doing. You're lying to yourself. You are the black knight in Monty Python and the Holy Grail who's just had his arms and legs cut off and King Arthur says, I must win. He goes, nope, nope, it's just a flesh wound. Your frailty is not a flesh wound. And if we are not praying, if I am not praying, I am denying that frailty. The extent to which you and I do not pray is the extent to which you are exposing yourself to what shame will do if you let it run rampant in your house. You will hide and you will blame. It will be everybody else's fault. And you will never reckon with what is in your heart that leads you to perform or leads you to walk down noxious, destructive ways. Prayer is for that. And the reason those things are still susceptible to when praying is not part of your life, it's because if you're not praying, you're also forgetting your purpose and the story that you're in. So yeah, pray for healing. Pray for provision. Pray for whatever those traveling mercies mean. I don't know. Fine, whatever it may be. But you want to pray for something? I'm, Genesis 3 ought to be expanding our sense of what prayer is for if it ever will. Pray into your frailty. Pray into your shame. Pray your forgetfulness. Remind yourself of what that story that you're in. Look, is prayer the only thing that you will do and everything will be fine? Of course not. Should you ever talk about it with other people? Should you receive the sacraments? Yes. Should you hear the preached word? Of course. Should you be in community with others? Absolutely. Do not neglect to meet with one another as is the habit of some, but remind one another. Spur one another on to love and good works. All of that. Don't leave it out praying. Don't leave it out. I'm preaching to myself. It is more tempting to go just sort of attend to the business of the church than ask him what the business of the church should be. Let me end with this. His name is Joe Duke. He knew Flannery O'Connor. He was six years old. He would go to her house, and Flannery O'Connor had peacocks. But also because she had lupus, she walked on crutches. And he loved the peacocks, but he was kind of like, what, what's with the crutches? What, what are, what, why do you have those? And she says, they help me walk. There's a lot of things that will help us walk. If you think prayer isn't one of them, you will hobble. I will hobble. I will forget my frailty. I will let shame swallow me up. And I will let all number of other stories begin to define me and shape the way I think and feel and love and act. That's why we're doing this.
It's not just pray more. He has more for us than we think. And that's why we need the Spirit's help to confirm us in that. Let's pray. Boy, have you given us a tall order. Boy, are you making promises to us that we perhaps look at with suspicion. Forgive us. Forgive me. Help us, Father, to to believe that even though you are invisible and that you are spirit, you are still near and nearer than our next breath. And that of all the things that afflict us, as it afflicted them in that moment, that early primordial moment, would you help us to find something of you in that? That we might then also have the courage to speak to others about it too. In Jesus' name, amen.